We are in the third Sunday of Advent, this season that is designed to prepare our hearts to encounter the mystery that is Christmas, that is God becoming incarnate. Our text this morning includes the Magnificat, Mary's beautiful song, praising and magnifying the Lord. Two unlikely mothers, Mary and her older cousin Elizabeth, came together in the midst of this mystery that was unfolding, and despite strange and confusing circumstances, joy filled the air. Let us listen now for God's word. Our reading comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 39 to 56. In those days, Mary set out and went with haste to a Judean town in the hill country, where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why has this happened to me, that the mother of my Lord comes to me? For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and then returned to her home. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. O God of fierce hope, abiding peace, and irrational joy, be with us as we listen for your word to us as individuals and as your church. Quiet all the distractions within and without so that we might notice your presence drawing near. In and through this, your holy word, shape us into the people you dreamed of at creation. Amen. So you'll notice that we lit a pink candle today in our Advent wreath. And uh, this is a long and interesting history for another day in terms of uh, how churches celebrate Advent. But originally, Advent was a pretty uh, reflective, penitential season. Not that different, actually, from Lent, the kind of mood of Lent. Um, while we kind of we acknowledged how the world is not as it should be. But on this Sunday, in the practice of Advent, uh, it would be called Gaudet Sunday or Joy Sunday or the Sunday of Pink, the color of roses, as some people talk about it, uh, relating to Mary and these words that she sang, this joy that she felt, that even in the midst of awaiting a Savior and how long that can feel, that there is still joy in the midst of that waiting. And so even that practice informs how we view this text today. And I'm excited to kind of walk into it with you. 
So both Mary and Elizabeth here are, are clearly, they're so joyful. They talk about how blessed they are. They talk about that they're rejoicing in their Lord. Um, but I confess the cynic in me uh, tends to focus on all the circumstances in their lives that are not so joyful. And I think it's important that we at least contextualize that a little bit. So let's step back for a moment and remember some of these key details of the story's context. Mary and Elizabeth lived under the heavy hand of Roman oppression. The power of the empire was constantly felt, whether it was heavy taxation or violence or viewing Jewish people as less than human. And while Mary and Elizabeth both followed in the footsteps of strong women ancestors of their faith, speaking truth about God's work in the world, they still lived in a patriarchal society. They still lived in a culture that reserved a woman's best purpose as that of being a mother. All of those limitations wear on people over time. When you experience violence and corruption and evil frequently, it weighs on you. It is not easy to bear. When Mary sang, she sang about all these things that were clearly not yet true, (laughs) even though she spoke of them in the past tense. Powerful people were still firmly settled on their thrones disregarding the needs of others. Those who were rich still had all of their possessions and their financial wealth. And those who were lowly, who were seen as less than by those in power, they were still hungry. They were still not full of good things. And so I confess I struggle with the joy here because I think it would be really easy for them to despair that things would never change. Even though we've had this miraculous encounter with an angel it would be hard to trust that those things were true, that Mary wasn't just hallucinating the whole thing. How many others had claimed to be a Messiah only to be crushed by Rome so quickly? And what's more, I imagine Mary might have felt a bit confused about all the angels said to her, what it might mean for her and her relationship with Joseph and her family and her community. She had said a a very brave, yes, let it be with me, but she could not have fully known what she was getting into. She could not have known what would be asked of her, what steps she would have to take. And yet both Mary and Elizabeth rejoiced. They both praised God and used this past perfect tense of grammar, which kind of connotes that something's already happened, but is also still somehow ongoing. How was Mary so sure? How could she sing that God had already done such things when Clearly, that wasn't the case. How could she feel joy and sing when the world was still so full of brokenness? I imagine that many of us could relate to these questions and presumptions about what Mary might have felt. How often have we said yes to something, not having any idea how hard it would be, how much it would ask of us, how deeply aware of our own limitations we would become? We want to, be, to do good in the world. We want to be a part of God's work for justice and love, but it's not always clear how. What steps to take, how to move forward. We are just individual people. Mary was very ordinary, and that was part of the point of God choosing her, that she was not in a position of power. She was not from a long lineage of powerful kings. 
And I think sometimes we can feel that way too. Just little old me, what in the world could I possibly do? And while Christian people in North America today are not oppressed in the way that the first century Jewish people were, many of us are deeply, deeply aware of the brokenness and violence and pain that all fill the world. If you've read the news at any point in the last several weeks or used any kind of social media, you have been aware of the ongoing conflict and violence in the Middle East that has escalated so brutally. And social media has a way of broadening our view, of kind of exposing us to different perspectives and experiences, and that can be great. We don't want to be an echo chamber or a silo or totally isolated. And sometimes in the face of such horror, when we feel so helpless and when it feels like the people who are on those thrones are not doing anything or doing enough to make peace happen in the world, we can inundate ourselves with that information. And when we inundate ourselves with that information and we focus on the horrors that are happening and only that, it becomes very tempting to despair. And you might think, well, why would we choose to despair? That sounds pretty depressing, like no one wants to be despairing, right? But it is tempting because it allows us to be pretty passive and to think that whatever we might do wouldn't really make a difference. Despair and cynicism go hand in hand. They allow us to kind of take in a lot of pain and just kind of hold on to it and there's no avenue for that energy to go. There's no place for that um, anger or love or desire to do good things to go. And so in a way, even though sometimes bringing in that information feels like it's broadening our world, sometimes it's like a, a fire hose, like it's just too much. And instead of spurring people to action, it spurs people to inaction. I think this goes along with how we celebrate this season any other year with any other hardship that's happening. I know I have such a strong reaction to the holiday season with its insistence that this is the best time of year because it is. And it isn't, right? We are grieving. We are missing people. We are feeling pressure to make magic for our kids. We are feeling pressure to show up as good enough for the people that we care about. And all the time, those things that are very challenging, we're also being pressured to be joyful about it and happy about it, and this is just the best thing ever. And what happens is that when we try and be happy and full of joy for weeks on end without the nuance of Advent and the whole season, without acknowledging the reality of those things that break our hearts, it just doesn't work. Those popular holiday songs ring hollow. We feel this kind of increasing emotional dissonance and don't know what to do with it. 
Advent is a season of naming how the world is not as it should be, but also asserting that God is still at work among us. And so there is this tension, this dance between acknowledging the reality of evil in the world and how we need to be saved from it and how this world needs to be redeemed. We don't need to say that's not real. But how we approach that reality in light of our faith matters. And while it's tempting to despair, God calls us to a different way of interacting with the world. God calls us to a different way of engaging the way of joy, which seems very strange. So let's look at this in the text. Where does joy show up here again? God gave joy to Elizabeth and Mary, and I think part of what that looked like was Mary rounding the corner, greeting her cousin, and seeing Elizabeth who at this point is five or six months pregnant, visibly pregnant. So she sees Elizabeth. She knows that Elizabeth has been barren for most of her life. She knows that Elizabeth has longed for a child for most of her life and that it has not happened. She also knows that this angel experience that just happened said, oh, your cousin is pregnant too. So Mary is going a little bit for validation, a little bit for celebration, And then she sees that it's true. There's got to be this moment of relief, like, okay, I wasn't making this up. I really did hear that. And there is joy for Elizabeth's joy, for her experience. And Elizabeth looks at Mary and understands fully how complicated this is and blesses Mary and gives her joy. And I think it's important to make a distinction here between joy and, like, the little things that make us happy, right? Like, a really good latte is great. It's awesome. But it's not joyful. There's delight there, and delight and joy have kind of uh, a nuance to them, too. But joy acknowledges the hardship. Joy acknowledges how hard it has been to get to this point of happiness, So the joy that we feel when someone who has struggled with infertility for years finally is expecting, it holds all of that pain that has been there for years. It says, oh my goodness, I know that's been so awful and so hard, and so now the joy I feel for you is actually deeper and more intense than just like, oh, that's cool, congrats. (laughs) And Elizabeth's joy for Mary Again, they can't really know what's happening. They have said yes to things, and it's going to be harder than they can imagine. But Elizabeth is given this intuition by the Holy Spirit that something's happened because Mary is not visibly pregnant. We don't know what Mary's greeting was, but I doubt it was, hey, I'm pregnant. It's good to see you. Something about Elizabeth just knew. And so Elizabeth knew that the hardship that her people and her ancestors had experienced for so long was being answered in the life of this young woman in the the baby she carried. 
So that joy wasn't just, okay, great, this is awesome. It was this whole depth of experience. Something really important is happening. So the joy in this text, it doesn't seem very rational, but it's real, and it's present, and it sustains them into a, a, a future that will be very challenging. John the Baptist is executed too. They will both grieve. But what I think this is showing us is that when the despair of the world feels very large, we are invited to make our lives for a season get very small. Mary was focusing on Elizabeth and greeting her and being joyful for her. Elizabeth was focusing on Mary. And because of this exchange of joy, they were able to make connections to the, big, the bigger things and the deeper hardships that were wrapped up in this joy. But because they limited themselves to this interaction, the person in front of them, and their visible pregnancy, and the person in front of them, and their hope and nervousness and excitement on their face. When the world gets very small, and we can notice the joys that are in front of us, then we are given something that sustains us, that gives us the strength to resist despair, that gives us the strength to act when we are ready and we have the energy to do so. And so the same is true for us today. Oppression is not new. It takes persistence and perseverance to endure in the face of continued brokenness. Any social activist will tell you that you have to pace yourself. This is a marathon, not a sprint. And the antidote to despair is joy. It's not insensitive. We're not throwing people's faces and saying, oh, it doesn't matter because these things are so great. It is taking the time to get very small, to look at the things right in front of you, and to see what joy there might be. For Mary and Elizabeth, it was related to these roles and vocations that they were stepping into. And I wonder what it might be for you and for me. People make light of the way that children engage with the magic of this season. People make light of um, sometimes the music that we sing or whether or not it's important to come to worship or whether or not this or that happens. We struggle to have real conversations with people about our year and how things have gone and where there have been good things and bad things. And But if we allow our world to get very small those things become pretty big, and that joy becomes something that sustains us. Brene Brown says that joy is the most vulnerable human emotion. And I just find that to be so resonant. When we express our joy, when we say that something is giving us joy, we are acknowledging that there is hardship behind that happiness that it hasn't always been joyful, 
that's been very hard, and that makes the joy that we're experiencing so much more sweet. And so I wonder this week, this season, if we can let ourselves get very small to do this dance of acknowledging reality and acknowledging horror and evil and asking God for help and doing what acts we can do and also allowing the acts that we do in our small and ordinary lives to be good enough to trust that God's working in and through those. We do what we can with what we have, where we are. Even baby steps are worth taking. That's the only way to get to walking. Even the smallest thing done with the best intention is worth doing. It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to save the world because that's not our job, because God came to do that. But it matters. And the only way we stay grounded in that mattering is in this dance between lamenting and noticing the joy that God brings us. It is irrational at times. The quote in your bulletin is from Madeline Engel. It's from her book called The Irrational Season. That's why I called the sermon this way. It doesn't make sense. It feels weird. (laughs) But it's the only way that I'm making it through this season myself. And it's the way Advent was designed. We have people who've walked ahead of us and have shown us the way to endure these things. This is the rhythm that we're living. This is the gift of the church and the gift of the story and the gift of God. And so for that, I give thanks. Amen.